All right. Well, listen, we want to get into our study immediately, so let's turn to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. We are so close to finishing this book, and we still have another year to go, so we're just... <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Just seeing if you're awake, paying attention. Are we getting something up there yet? Uh, there. See? I knew it was going to be right on time. Revelation chapter 21, verse 9. You'll notice I haven't completed how much, how many verses we're going to do. We're going to do 21, well, up to verse 21. So 9 all the way down to 21. That's what our text is going to be. I kind of like science fiction. How many of you like science fiction? You know, I mean the movies, the books. I've been reading science fiction since I was a kid. You know, and, and the important word in that phrase, science fiction, you know what it is? Fiction. And uh, we, we see a lot of stuff happening nowadays, you know, Star Wars, Star Trek, uh, one star after another or whatever, uh, Ender's Game. Uh, you know, it's an interesting thing that most science fiction is written by people who are not believers, uh, and, and many will claim to be atheists, you know, and they're uh, evolutionists and and all. So they have this worldview that is totally looking at, at things, you know, that, that happen in their minds. And I have to say it that way, in their minds, you know, billions of years ago, you know, that uh, Earth started you know, just uh, from a big bang, you know, some amoeba in the sky just decided to blow up or something. And that happened about five billion years ago. Now, here's the problem. That is science fiction. Why am I bringing this up? Because science requires, true science requires empirical evidence. And there's no empirical evidence, you know, for the world being created 4.5 billion years ago. But you do have to trust that by faith nowadays, but they won't tell you that. You have to believe that by faith because nobody was there to show it to us. Now, I'm not going back to the book of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, which we started back in 2010. But I am, I am saying this because what we're looking at tonight is a picture of heaven and the new Jerusalem. And it doesn't require science to know that it is true. But just like everything from Genesis 1 verse 1 to the end of Revelation and everything in between, we trust the author. We trust the author and the finisher of our faith. But it's interesting to know that much true empirical evidence is behind much of what we see in the scriptures today. So in what we have yet to see, that certainly we have to believe and trust, is coming from a source that is trustworthy. And our God is trustworthy. And our God is faithful. So when John receives the visions that are given to him in the book of Revelation, and in particular this vision tonight, it blows science fiction away. Hollywood cannot create what God can create. And what God provides for eternity. Man continues to look out into the stars to see where it all began. We look into the scriptures and we believe in the beginning God. When we come to the book of Revelation, it isn't the end. It isn't to say when we close the the door on chapter 22 in a couple of weeks, give or take a week or two, We're not saying it's the end. We're saying it's only the beginning. Because the God who was faithful to to create us in the image, in His image, and to provide for us a way 
to be rescued from the sin that was caused in the garden by, by the enemy of our faith. And when we look around at all of the evil and the wickedness of this world today and realize that that source was given to us a long time ago and we, we know what it is. It is much easier to believe what God says than what the world says. So when Jesus said, what we'll see him say in the scriptures tonight from the gospel, from the gospel of Matthew, and when we hear the Apostle Paul say what we'll see from 1 Timothy chapter 4 in just a moment, that we're living in dangerous times, or 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're living in perilous times. We can count on what the Word of God says. And the visions that we see in Revelation are no longer hard to believe. Because God said that this is the way it's going to be. So as we look at verse 9 of our text, and already we have looked, of course, at the first eight verses. But it says, And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. So this angel speaks to John and says, Look, I have more to show you, so come with me. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. So we know that this Jerusalem is different than the Jerusalem that is in Israel today. Having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And I want to stop for just a moment. And, 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 and those of you that have been to Israel with us or those of you that are going here uh, in, in January, one, one of the great moments of our trip usually is when we finally go through most of the uh, the stuff we've done up in the north and then out in the south, because the last place we go to is Jerusalem. But when we make the climb from from the um, from the desert, from the Dead Sea, through the Judean wilderness, and make our way into the city of Jerusalem, it, it is a stunning sight to see the old city to our left as we're driving up in the bus. And usually it's at a time when the sun is shining bright upon the city. And, 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 and it strikes us how beautiful it is. But there's no beauty as great as the beauty of this heavenly city. Because one of the things that really stands out when you drive into the, into the earthly Jerusalem is that there is still the uh, Islamic presence on the Temple Mount. And you see the uh, Dome of the Rock and while it is gold and it shines brightly, it isn't the glory of God. But in this heavenly city, you see the glory of God. Because the glory of God is on that city. Then it says her light was like a most precious stone, like, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And I want to uh, let you know that that stone itself, is quite similar to a diamond that shines bright when the light hits it just right. And usually, diamonds are given at the time of betrothal. So keep that in mind. There's no way that man knows how to really portray in, in art or in any other way that city, but that's about the best one I could find. <laughs> As we begin our study in this section of chapter 21, I'd like, I'd like to point out an amazing paradox. Now, a, a paradox is simply an apparent contradiction, uh, a statement that seems to contradict itself or, or to conflict with common sense, but which contains a truth. 
So a paradox is not two ducks. I have to say that because a lot of times, you know, a paradox, are you talking about two ducks? No. A paradox, D-O-X. So, here it is. Should an old saint, a Christian from the apostolic age, the time of, of the apostles, in other words, should an old saint, a Christian, be able to revisit the world to take a look at our modern day Christianity, they would be greatly puzzled to understand how under the facade or the pretense of spirituality the whole church is saturated and weighed down with carnal philosophies, carnal hopes and carnal aims. All of that is far from the simplicity that is in Christ Jesus. That is far from what they would know the church to be. The paradox is that the glory of the prophesied kingdom of God has been downplayed into metaphor while earthly crowns and mitres and tiaras and wealth and secular significance are looked upon and worshipped along with rejoicing in monarchs, popes, patriarchs, bishops, cult leaders, orators and prosperity-driven charlatans espousing the riches on earth greater than those in heaven. That's the paradox. But in defense of this carnality, that wizened old Satan would be told that the kingdom was set up 2,000 years ago. It's already come. It's already here. Or so the preterists say. The preterists being those who believe that all of the prophecies of the scriptures have been fulfilled. And then they would tell this saint the, the, the coming again of Jesus Christ in person to reign on earth is really just a carnal idea long since shattered and only held by a few peculiar eccentric people, that's us, who cannot rise to, to, the, uh, uh, to the new age spirituality of the new interpretation of Scripture. And as to the heavenly Jerusalem... It is just a symbol of the beautiful church state that is in the here and now. That is what they would say. But I must ask you the question, is the church in such a beautiful state right now? Well, not according to Jesus and the apostles. In Matthew chapter 24 where Jesus gives the Olivet Discourse. When he is answering the questions of his disciples, when when are all these things going to happen? Jesus begins by saying in Matthew 24, verse 4, And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. The first thing he says when dealing with the, the end times in which we are living in today is, he says, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. Now that's a, that's a two-pronged uh, uh, deception. It's a two-pronged deception. We're getting uh, a, um, what do they call those? A, one of those um, weather alerts probably on somebody's phone. I hope it's not for El Paso County, but you know. We hope. Or one of those uh, amber alerts too. What what I'm saying is, please turn it off. (laughs) Or at least look at it to see what it is and then turn it off. Okay. He says, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, or I am the Christ and will deceive many. Again, two-pronged. It can represent someone who comes and says, I am the Christ personally. Or they will say, yes, this is Jesus, but their Jesus is different than the Jesus of the Scriptures. For example, Mormonism. The Jesus of Mormonism is completely different than the Jesus of the Scriptures. The Jesus of the Jehovah's Witness, a different Jesus than the Jesus of the Scriptures.
It's that close? I've got to get my ears checked. A little later in that same chapter, it says, And if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. Jesus says. And the interesting thing about that, folks, when, when you read all around that particular passage in verse 23, it's talking about even those who go out into the desert. And uh, not too many months ago when we were talking about uh, uh, Revelation 18 and, and uh, looking at the alternative view of, of what, what the mystery Babylon the Great is and realizing that it isn't really Europe or it's not even really in Rome and all of that, it's, it's in the desert. Verse uh, 24, For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through, uh, 1 through 3, he says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Now, that was happening in Paul's time, but it is happening a lot more now. Because now we are seeing the signs of the end times really taking place in a grand and a greater way. Speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. But then he goes even deeper in the second letter to Timothy, and he says in 2 Timothy 3 verse 1, But know this, that in the last days perilous, dangerous times will come. Dangerous, perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty or arrogant, lovers of pleasure. Now here's, here's the connection to the church. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And from such people, turn away. The uh, White is the Gay conference that we had back in November of last year. It was so heavy on my heart to make sure that we had these people that came for that conference to speak to our hearts. And I am so blessed that many in the church came all the nights that we had those conferences, meetings. Because this is exactly what they were saying. There's a form of godliness, but it denies the true power of God and the true power of the Word of God and the true power of Christ and of His Spirit. From these we are to turn away. Now, with that in mind, and I I use these scriptures often, but with all of that in mind, the church is going to be beautiful. The church is going to be beautiful after the day or that day when he comes, when Jesus comes for his bride to prepare her for his eternal kingdom. The, The church is going to be beautiful. Because it will be very clearly then... A church that is together and everybody will know that you are the, in, the, in, the, in the true body of Christ. And if you remember, and I'll say it again, that the city is not the bride. And, and, and we'll read it again in just a moment. The city is not the bride. We are the bride. But the city is so closely tied into the bride. That the city itself is the adornment for the bride. I was reading today about, about wedding gowns and, and jewelry for weddings and stuff, you know, uh, rings especially with, you know, diamonds that are as big as a baseball on somebody's, well, not that big, but pretty big. And, and, and then, of course, gowns that are just laced with all kinds of jewels on it. There was one gown that was $12 million. So, you know, you wear it one time. Well, unless you can spend it and use it for other weddings, but anyway, you know. Uh, that's a lot of money. But this is the adornment of the bride, the city. In fact, we can say that that city is the wedding ring. It is the jewel. 
that is precious, you see, that reminds us and every one of us of his great love for his bride. The great love that Jesus has for his bride, the church. And so as we saw in verse 9, the uh, multitasking angel who was out there you know, pouring out wrath, at one point he comes over and he says, hey, listen, i got something else to do. He now serves as a tour guide to John of the, of the New Jerusalem. And he shows him the heavenly city, the heavenly Jerusalem, having the brightness of the glory of God and appearing as a most precious stone. Obviously, that is where we're going to live. That adornment is going to surround the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. And Jesus did promise his disciples that he would build them a place for them after his departure from the earth. And again, I know that I I quote this a lot, but I, I just love this passage. I love it for a lot of reasons, but it fits here. Because Jesus did say to his disciples, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And then he says, And where I go, you know. And the way you know. In three and a half years, I have talked about where we're going and how we go. Where you're going and how you go. But of course, it was Thomas who had to say, I don't know. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So that is a very clear statement of how we get to this heavenly place. This is that beautiful city. Within, within this city, there are individual dwelling places of which he spoke. Another significant point to mention is that we're never told, and listen carefully, we are never told the new Jerusalem is on earth. We're never told it's on earth. It just seems... To hover above earth. Well, that's okay. We won't have to worry about whether we have a ticket to go from the earth to that heavenly Jerusalem. The price was already paid. So you actually do. And you don't need to have your hand stamped because you've got your heart stamped. Well, we'll talk more about the appearance later. Let's move on in the chapter. It says, Also she had a great and high wall with twelve gates. Speaking of the city, of course. She had a great and high wall with twelve gates and twelve angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. So now you have a structure that resembles somewhat of a square. In fact, the next verse says, Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Let's deal with all of this for just a moment. We do get some details about the city now from John. As he has shown this by the angel, now he writes it down for us. And first of all, it will have high walls, but these walls will not be for protection. We won't need protection. Evil's been destroyed. The devil's been destroyed. The Antichrist has been destroyed. All of evil on the earth has been destroyed. We don't need protection. The walls themselves are to show the beauty of God's handiwork and of Christ's handiwork. It will also have 12 gates, as verse, and as verse 25 will tell us later, these gates shall be open at all times. They will never shut. We'll talk about that next time. 
These walls will have 12 gates, three on each side, and by each of these gates there will be an angel standing by, and each of the gates will have the name of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now the wall of the city will also have a foundation of 12 layers, and each of these layers will bear the name of one of the 12 apostles. So what do we have? We have 12 names of the children of Israel, and we have 12 names of the, of the apostles. And there's some question, I can, I'll just bring this up very briefly, but there's some question, will Paul's name be there or will Matthias' name be there? We, we definitely know that Judas Iscariot's name will not be there. We know that. But Matthias was chosen in the book of Acts. And yet throughout the writings of the New Testament, there is a very clear indication that Paul who was born out of due season when it came to being an apostle, was nonetheless an apostle of Jesus Christ. So we can say, well, technically, it's, it's possible that his name will not be there, and Matthias's will. But he is an apostle. We won't worry about it. We don't have to worry about it. I'll tell you what. Just write it down on a piece of paper. When I get to heaven, I want to know whose names are there. And you'll get to see it when, when, it, when it happens. So thus this city will be uh, a place for both the Old and the New Testament saints. Because there is the mention of the children of Israel, of course, and of course, the apostles. And it will become a heritage for the people of God. Because from Genesis to Revelation, God is talking about raising up a people that come first and foremost from Israel, from the, the, the nation that he created through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then there is the foundation that is so necessary for all of us, which is the foundation of the apostles. As a matter of fact, Paul alludes to this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. And notice what he says. He says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers... Now, the majority of the people that were in the church of Ephesus were not Jews. Some of them were, but some of them were also Gentiles. And it is in this chapter that he, that he talks about the, the wall of separation and, you know, kind of coming down so that the Jew and Gentile together, you know, Gentiles are grafted into the, into the church, uh, you know, or into Israel, I should say. But it says, Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built, notice this, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Apostles and prophets, of course, apostles, New Testament, prophets, Old Testament. In whom the whole building, the whole building which is the church, being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So he certainly does uh, allude to this issue that we see here in Genesis chapter 21, of a foundation that is the apostles. I want you to turn for a moment to Hebrews chapter 11 in your Bibles. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. As Paul shows us the faith of Abraham as he looks ahead to this time that we're talking about. Abraham actually looked to this time. He looked to this city. Notice that it says in verse 8, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, the land of Canaan. And he, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Now, follow along. In verse 9, By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham, and it goes on to talk about this with Sarah and Abraham and, and, and all in the next couple of verses, of the very fact that, you know, that they were, they were sojourners. They, they didn't plant themselves into this earth. They didn't plant themselves into this world. They knew that there was something coming beyond this world and a city that was greater than any city that they would either establish or be placed in. So if you run down from there 
to, uh, well, let me just say that Abraham was called by the Lord to leave his homeland, go to a place that he didn't know and, and to a place that he didn't own, and to trust that as God promised, he would provide for him. But Abraham was always looking ahead to a future city that God was going to build, a city that has foundations provided for by the Lord. So if you run down to verse 13 now in the same chapter, it says, these all died in faith. Now again, this is important to note. They died on this earth, but they died in faith. Not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. In other words, if they're declaring, you know, a, a, a place here, uh, they're seeking a homeland. In other words, well, I'm, I'm not, not the ones looking here. Because if you're looking beyond here, you're still seeking a homeland. That was a point there. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm getting excited here. I don't know about you, but uh, I think it might have also been a little bit too much caffeine today, but but we'll see. Uh, But in in verse 15, now notice this. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. So in other words, if if all, all they had on their mind was, well, I need a home, I need a place on this earth, I could think of my own, my old country, I would go back to that. But remember that that God said to Abraham, leave the Ur of the Chaldees, and he did. And Hebrews tells us he went not knowing where he was going. He was trusting God all the way. So when you look at verse 16, it says, but now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. It is the mindset of the church. It has to be the mindset of the church to say, listen, I thank God for the city in which I live because he's placed me here to be his servant. I thank God for the blessings that he's given us of, of houses and homes and, and, and places to establish our families and, and, and our communities. But this isn't home. This isn't home. And God knows and honors the heart that says, you know, I'm not here to stay. Oh, I like that thunder when I talk. I'm not here to stay. I'm looking for a better country. In this life, in this place, in this world, I suffer. And you suffer. And we lose. And we're pained by the loss of loved ones. It's not to say that we don't have blessings. We have tremendous blessings here. But God is always reminding us, this isn't your home. So don't think that you put roots down here. We look for a better country. uh, We look for a heavenly country, a heavenly city, a heavenly place where we can say, ah, I'm finally home. But we're not there yet, but we're getting there. So, I find it quite fascinating that Abraham only saw himself as a stranger and a sojourner. Abraham, just passing through, just passing through this life as he was heading for that city that God had prepared for him. An eternal city. He had his descendants... I mean, he and his descendants had vision of the future, uh, which caused them not to hang on to the things of this world, things which would cause them to be drawn away from the things of God. They, for the most part, kept a proper perspective as they saw this life not as their home, but looked forward to a city that God built for them to dwell in eternity. The lesson should speak volumes to us today. Take, for example, what Peter writes in Second Peter chapter 3. Verses 11 through 13. And I I know I've used this uh, recently, but I think it's important for us to look at it again. Because this is the clarity to when he says that all the elements are going to melt with a fervent heat. You know, he talks about the day of the Lord coming and and the day of the Lord is like a thief in the night. And, and, you know, it's one day is as a thousand years unto the Lord. You know, what he says right before all of this. But notice what he says. Therefore, because of all of this that's happening, 
Because of all of these things that are going to happen to this earth and, 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 and it's going to melt and the heavens and the, and the earth are going to be destroyed and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. But this is what he says. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be... Uh, <clears throat> what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? You know, what, you know what's implied in this? What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness now? Right now, today. And then, what are we doing? Are you looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire and, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. What manner of persons ought we to be? And we should be looking for that day. But then he says, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That links us to Abraham. Because he looked, not for a city here, but for a city that was yet to come. Let me just say that there is nothing in this life that is permanent. May I say that again? There is nothing in this life that is permanent, and yet some people hold on to things as if they are. But we too are pilgrims. I know that might have drawn a little picture in your mind of a funny black hat with buckles on your shoes. And we're coming into that, you know, that season where, you know, pumpkins are going to be all around and we think, oh, you know, you know the pilgrims and, and Thanksgiving and eating turkey and, and watching the football on, on, on their TVs. Now, they didn't have TVs in those days, did they? But the pilgrims, you know, it's an interesting thing. What had they done? They had left Europe because they were being persecuted for their faith. I'm speaking of, of course, the more modern pilgrims of the uh, 17th century. And they came to this country that they might worship God without the constraints of, of some nationalistic type of restrictions upon their faith. So they sojourned. They traveled. They got away. They lived in temporary housing, as it were. But down deep inside of their hearts, they knew this wasn't their home. The same must apply to us. This isn't our home. Because we're now strangers just passing through. We're citizens of heaven and particularly of the new and holy Jerusalem. And only there will things have permanence. Only in that city will things have permanence. They will be permanent. Let's move on to verse 15 and uh, a couple of verses following that. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates and its walls. So the angel had a measuring rod. And then John says the city is laid out as a square. Ah, we said that it was a square from the dimensions. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with a reed. 12,000 furlongs. Its length and breadth and height are equal. So it was a cube. Or it is a cube. It will be a cube. And then he measured its wall. 144 cubits. According to the measure of a man that is of an angel. So, in fact, what that, all that says is that the measure of a cubit for a man is the same as the measure of a cubit for an angel. That, that's really all it means. So a reed measured around or about 10 feet 
And we are told that this new city will measure some 12,000 furlongs. And if I have the measurement correct, some have rounded it off to 600, but I, I, if I got it as close as I can, it's 582 feet per furlong. 582 feet per furlong, so that would make this new city about 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, and 1,500 miles high. So each of these measurements, if you come from Canada, that equals 2,400 kilometers all the way around. Right, Danny? (laughs) Danny worked in Canada, so they do the kilometer thing. So 2,400 kilometers. That would be the distance from Maine to Florida. And the square footage would approximately equal the size of the moon. It would be in the shape of a perfect cube, which, by the way, would resemble the holy place in the tabernacle. The holy place in the tabernacle was designed to be a cube like space. The wall will also be measured. The wall will also be measured. In this case, its thickness or its height would be about 216 feet thick or high. That's pretty high. Without going into any great amount of speculation and because we will all have new glorified bodies, which means we will be able to live throughout the multidimensional structure on various levels. That'd be no problem. Nothing to worry about. There will be plenty of room to live in this place. Because approximately, if you go deeper into the measurements, approximately 3 billion square miles of living space will be within. That's a lot of living space. Because according to some estimates, if there were 12 billion people living in the New Jerusalem, each person would have nearly three quarters of a mile to live in for themselves. That's pretty nice. I've always wanted three quarters of a mile to live in. That's why I could go run and hop around, you know. I don't know what's going to happen, but that's, that's what we have as far as the dimensions are, are concerned, and it's given. Listen, if these dimensions are being given this way, don't you think that it means something? That it isn't just metaphoric, that it isn't just allegorical, that it is really something that is being measured to let you know God's serious about giving us this place? I mean, I have to, I have to think that we, we, we tend to forget measurements. We tend to forget that Jesus is going to rule and reign in Jerusalem for a thousand years before this takes place. We say, oh, it's just a long time, and really it's just metaphoric. That's stupid. Forgive me, Lord. I, I know I, I shouldn't word, use the words like that, but, but, but isn't it? It's come down to this. Do you believe the Word of God or don't you? Quit playing with what God says is going to happen. I, I said this this weekend... Uh, Using that verse where, 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 where Paul uses the term, you know, do not be ignorant, brethren. He was really saying, don't be morons. That really is a word that, 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 he's, that he's using. Don't be morons. Believe what God says. I leave that in Paul. I'm not calling anybody moron. Paul is. All right. I feel better. Let's go, let's go on to verse 18. The construction of, of its wall was of jasper. So now we're looking at what it's made of. The construction of its wall was of jasper and the city was pure gold like clear glass. So you have clear gold that you can see through, whether it's transparent or translucent, probably not opaque, but you can see through it, so it's clear. The jasper itself, as I mentioned before, is is, is very diamond-like. The foundations of the wall, verse 19, the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation, again, was jasper. The, the jasper, by the way, again, was clear. 
if you have to apply a color to it, it was probably white. But more than that, it was just clear, but it but, but shines brightly. And then the second is sapphire. The sapphire is blue, at least according to the sapphire of the scriptures. And then the third, uh, chalcedony, or, or, or chalcedon, or chalcedony, uh, that is kind of a, a blue, lighter blue with, with white uh, lines or, or streaks within it. Now, speaking of the, the stone itself. And then the fourth is emerald. And of course, emerald is green and, and a bright green. You move on to verse 20 and it talks about the fifth stone being sardonyx. Sardonyx was a bright red stone. The sixth sardius, it was more of a ruby-colored stone or ruby-type stone. The seventh is chrysolite. And chrysolite was kind of a, kind of a goldish color. The eighth was beryl, which it, it itself is kind of a turquoise color. So it's kind of a sea-green type uh, color. And I'm mentioning this in colors because, listen, this is what John is seeing. And, and, and it's covering a, a, a lot of the spectrum of color that God created. The ninth is topaz, which is a, uh, a yellow-green stone. The tenth is chrysoprase, uh, and that one is, is a green stone as well. The eleventh is jacinth, and jacinth is, is a violet-colored stone. So it's a lighter purple type stone, but it's, it's, it's violet. And then the last is amethyst. That is a deep purple color. Now think about all that color. I mean, it's just beautiful. It's, I mean, I, I can't wait to see it. But what are, what are the, the significant, what, what is the significance of this, of this color here? Uh, well, let's, let's read on. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's, let's look at verse 21. The 12 gates were 12 pearls. Now, the gates of, of, of the city are pearls. I know I've used this statement before, but I would love to see the oysters that these pearls came from. If there are one gate, I guess be a massive oyster. I'm sure that you wouldn't want to eat the half shell portion. Uh, the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Uh, that's got to be an amazing vision. So you'll notice in it that the city is primarily made up of stones and gems. Not trees and bushes and grass and so on. Not at all like the Garden of Eden. Where was the Garden of Eden restored? In the Messianic Kingdom, the Millennial Kingdom, the Thousand Year Reign. Remember we talked about that. But the walls of this city will be made of jasper, crystal clear, and that while being over 200 feet thick, if you can imagine that, and the gold is so pure that it appears clear, now, if you listen to some pastors and ministers today, you'd think that God was broke and on some sort of welfare. And that's what I was, all, what I was thinking about. You know, when I'm reading this, I'm saying, man, this is a beautiful thing, and it's got all these colors, and it's got all these stones and gems. And, and I thought, how come people are talking about God as if He's poor? Have you ever heard this? I have. In over 40 years of knowing Jesus, and I've listened to just about every preacher on TV, you know, just to see what's going on. But I've heard this. If you don't give to the Lord through this ministry, He's going to, uh, he's going to go out of business for sure. We're going to have to shut down our ministry. Well, shut it down, dude, because you obviously aren't doing what God wants you to do. Because God's not poor. I mean, can we understand something here right now? God isn't broke because He owns everything, both here on this earth and in heaven. And I have to say, with, with the sound of the, 
of the uh, thunder and the rain and all. I just remember one preacher, and I'm, I'm going to mention his name, probably because I can't remember it, but years and years ago, this guy was a prominent, uh, you know, faith preacher, and, and he used to get on, man, and just preach and tell people, you know, you can, you, you can prosper in the Lord and blah, 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 and this and that. And week in and week out, and of course, at the end was the, was the, the plea, you know, you know, send all your, your, your tithes and offerings over to us, and, you know, blah, 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 and God's going to bless you and give you a hundredfold and this and that. And then one Sunday, I remember watching this, uh, and this was years before I came to, you know, to, uh, into the ministry, but so I was watching this on a Sunday morning, and, and the guy's sitting there with, standing there with his wife, and they got an umbrella, and there's you know, water all over, and it's you know, leaking off of the umbrella, and they're standing there with these sad faces. Oh, you know, we're, we're, uh, you know if, if, you, if you can't help us today, if you, you can't send your, your, you know, your, your gifts today, we're, we're going to go off the air. I'm thinking, what happened last week? You were saying everything was cool. And then this happens. And I said, you know, I don't know why, but the Lord just kind of put it in my heart. And they said, go off the air. Maybe you're not listening to him. God's not poor. The Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He always meets our needs. There's never a day that he doesn't meet our needs. Because he gives us everything we need here and now. Because you know what? This isn't it. This isn't where we're going to stay. You ever drive by on the freeway over there by, 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 the, uh, by the mall? And, and you see that big, big sign, you know, that tells you what the, the amounts are for the, the two lotteries? This week I'm going to buy tickets. This week. Cause it's so high this week. We're putting our faith in the wrong things. God provides everything we need. You know, to say that God is broke or this ministry is going to stop if people don't give because God can't supply the need on His own, then that is a lie and a manipulation of people. Folks, we've always believed that where God guides, He provides. The great thing is that God allows us to be part of the ministry as we give. As we give. And he's given us that, pre- that, that precious privilege. What he has given to us, we can give back to him to be used for the building of his kingdom. And we're blessed beyond measure as we do. Just as a reminder to you, 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So there it is. You know, what, what else needs to be said? So let each one give, uh, let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of a necessity. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. What he gives us is so that we can continue his work until the day of Jesus Christ. All right, let's move on from that. Without going into any great detail, let me just say that decorating these foundations were all kinds of precious stones covering the whole spectrum of the colors of the rainbow. What is interesting to me is that foundations are usually hidden from plain sight, but not this foundation. These foundations are fully exposed, bearing the name of the twelve apostles and decorated with these colorful gemstones. Any biblical reference whatsoever would probably be found in Exodus chapter 28, verses uh, verses 15 through 21, which I'm going to ask you to read later. Let me give you the reference again. Exodus 28... Verses 15 through 21. Do you know what that refers to? It refers to the breastplate of the high priest. The breastplate of the high priest had 12 gemstones on it. Compare those to these stones that are mentioned in Revelation 21. As I said, the 12 gates were each made of one pearl. Now consider that a pearl is nothing more you guys ready to understand this? A pearl is nothing more than a byproduct of an irritating grain of sand or a tiny parasite which is coated by the oyster. It is coated by the lustrous nacre of an oyster. Nacre. N-A-C-R-E. Okay, just so you'll know. This is, just, this is our science lesson tonight. A nacre, N-A-C-R-E, 
is simply that shiny, you know, you know what it's also called? Mother of pearl. You all know what mother of pearl is now? That's the nacre. It's produced within the oyster. Some, some scientists don't even know a lot about how that is produced. But it is produced in an oyster. And, and let's say something pierces an oyster shell. The oyster within lets the nacre flow and covers that hole. So it's that shiny substance within. And it is the, the nacre that begins to surround that tiny grain of sand or parasite that's within the oyster and it builds it up until it becomes a round perfect well not not all of them are perfect but it becomes a, a pearl that's what a pearl is what does that mean to us well I want you to turn to Matthew 13 turn there please with five minutes left to go in this period. <laughs> Turn there to Matthew 13, verses 45 and 46. Listen to this parable of Jesus. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, there are many ways of, of interpreting this particular uh, parable of Jesus, but, but listen for just a moment, this perspective. We are that pearl of great price. Listen. We are that pearl of great price for which the Lord purchased with his life. We are irritating and parasitic. You like that? But that's what we are. We are irritating and parasitic and yet God purchased us and has clothed us in his righteousness. And thus we are put on display for eternity as the angels marvel at the grace of God. The angels, man, they wonder, how, why does God love these people so much? And they wonder that. And that God has clothed us with His righteousness. Because the Lord takes something as worthless as we were and makes us into a pearl of great price, something beautiful that He has on display. And so these gates, to a certain extent, are symbolic of God's people. And so as we enter through these gates, we are reminded of what God has done for us. Now compare what is valuable to us and what is valuable to God. Let's compare that for a moment. For us, gold and silver and precious stones and precious metals and money and this and that, these things are all valuable to us. But not to God. Not to God. He built the new Jerusalem out of all of these things as if they were asphalt and rocks. He builds a city out of them. So what is valuable to God? Psalm 149 verse 4. This is what is valuable to God. For the Lord takes pleasure in His people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. That's what's precious to God. a humble people. And he takes pleasure in his people. Psalm 147, verse 11. Just go back to Psalms. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. He just loves it when we worship him and just bow down to him. Because fear is, is not fear like the world has fear. This is, this is reverence. This is respect. And the Lord takes pleasure in that, in those who hope in his mercy. Do you hope in his mercy? He really sees that as valuable. That's valuable to the Lord. 
Let your hope in His mercy. You go back to verse 3 of Revelation 21 where we've been so far. Look at verse 3. It says, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and He will dwell with them and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. He takes pleasure in being with His people. That's what's valuable to God. And then you look at verses 6 and 7, and he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. That's what's valuable to God. Never forget the fact that we are more precious to the Lord than all the riches of the world. We are more precious to the Lord than all the riches that can be seen or attained in this life. That's how much God loves you. That's why our perspective of the things of this earth needs to be from a heavenly position. It needs to be from a glorious position of Christ's view of us. You see, the problem is when man looks at a mirror and, and, and smiles and says, wow, now that's a specimen. You know, when God sees us before the mirror and we say, oh, Lord, have mercy on that. Please. I can only think of that one word of John Newton's hymn. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And when we've been there, 10,000 years. Are you ready to be someplace for 10,000 years? You know what that number means? It means eternity. There aren't any calendars small enough for us to mark off each day of 10,000 years. The whole point is, it's a long time that we will be in the presence of the Lord. Bright shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing His praise than when we first begun. I'm going to ask everybody just to sit and let's pray. No one get up. Go and get up. Just sit and pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your love and grace. We thank you that you care about our every need. And if there's anything, Lord God, that you would have us to learn from this night's study, that, Lord, There's nothing in this, in this life that matters more than our relationship and our fellowship with you. And that what we're looking for is not here. We did find something here. We found truth. We found Jesus. But now, Lord, we're 
We're sojourners. We're passing through. We're, we're not of this world. So our heart's desire, Lord God, has to be you and your kingdom and that place that you have made for us. I leave, Lord God, this group of people before you and us all together. Trusting, Lord, that tonight you've spoken to our hearts. Because you've given us a name that is above every name. And that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord the glory of God the Father. I pray that that has been done. But if not, I pray that it will be done tonight. Receiving Jesus. Thank you for all that you've done. And all that you're doing. In Jesus' name. Amen.